Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Woo! Yeah! <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Uh, well, good evening, everyone. Everyone okay? Okay. Uh, I'm a little sad, actually. It is my last night with you tonight. I know. I know, I know. You all want to get home for Thanksgiving. I know, I know. It's fine. But it's cold and wet and miserable <laughs> back in England right now. But I'm used to it. Right, okay, so I hope you've all had plenty to chew on so far in the two sessions. We're, we're going to give you a lot to chew on tonight too. Um, tomorrow I'll be going slightly easier on you. You see, it's kind of tomorrow we're, we're shifting our focus and we'll be looking more at the biblical identity that we have in Christ and the blessings that come with that. Uh, but I hope you see the sort of the necessity of taking this broad sweep when we're looking at a subject like human identity because it's one that obviously people engage with uh, in all areas of life. Let's pray and then we'll get into our study tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, again for this time. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing that it is to be here. We'd ask now that you would just uh, fill me with your spirit, Lord, anoint the, the words of my mouth. We pray, Lord, that you would just be with everyone here and give them ears to hear, Lord God, what you're saying to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last time we saw, we went through, sort of looked at a lot of history we saw some of the problems that can happen when people reject the foundation of the Word of God and they look at human identity through a number of different means. We primarily looked at evolution, naturalism, and all these words that are basically an excuse for taking God out of the equation. We ended by focusing by saying that we need to use a different mirror, a mirror that shows us a true reflection of who we are, but also a mirror that will show us a true reflection of who God is. Obviously, this is the Word of God. So it's to the Word of God that we want to turn now. For those of you that don't know, if you've ever seen, you probably haven't seen, because the last one didn't happen, it happened in like 1952, the coronation of a British monarch. So you've never seen that very kind of august and pomp and fanfare ceremony. But there's one part of the ceremony when a monarch is being uh, having a coronation to the throne where the the bishops will approach her with a, uh, a Bible it's a beautiful Bible um, and they will say these words to her to the Queen or the King we present you with this book the most valuable thing the world affords here is wisdom this is the royal law and these are the living oracles of God it's a beautiful part of the ceremony and then the queen is or the king is taken behind out of view from everyone else and they're stripped down into white linen and it's it's all very symbolic it's actually kind of based on what used to happen in the levitical services of the temple but the emphasis of the word of god for that nation for our nation at that time was high now in my my personal bible collection i a geek i collect things like that i have a coronation bible of king george and of queen elizabeth and they have pictures and the royal crests of the, the, the family, the, you know, the royal families on them. And they have the entire ceremony in the front of them so you can follow through word by word. They're amazing pieces of history to read through. But thus was the place that the Bible had in the nation at one point. During the Second World War, King George VI, he, I, I know you had something similar in this country too, but he, he distributed personal copies of the New Testament to all forces serving. And in the front of these Bibles, they had a little message from the king. And it said this, To all serving in my forces by sea or land or in the air, and indeed to all my people engaged in the defense of the realm, I commend the reading of this book. 
and for centuries the Bible has been a wholesome and strengthening influence in our national life and it behooves us in these momentous days to turn with renewed faith to this divine source of comfort and inspiration. I have one of these Bibles too. See, the message of the Bible has provided hope, meaning, purpose, and most importantly, truth to generations and generations. John Wesley said, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way for this very end he came from heaven, and he has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. Any price, give me the book of God. I have it here. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. You see, the Bible, as I hope you've seen from the first session and a little bit from yesterday's session, the Bible definitely speaks into the area of human identity and humanity. Yet our culture has changed quite a bit since those two things happened, only in the last 50 years. Let me just contrast that with you again. Recent magazine article, GQ magazine, Gentleman's Quarterly magazine. Anyone see this article? 21 books you don't have to read. Just happened a few, mo- a few months back, I believe. They started off their article with these words. Now all the great books have aged well. Some are racist, some are sexist, but most are just really, really boring. So we, a group of unboring writers, give you permission to strike these books from the canon. Number 12 on their list was the Bible. And of the Bible they said this, The Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. There's a little jab there, you can tell. Those who have read it know there are some good parts, but overall it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned. You see, this, this is what people are being presented with. You think of those examples that I gave of the confusion that reigns, the despair, the people searching for answers and meaning to life, and yet this is what they're being force-fed, and this is just garbage, really. Intellectually, it's garbage. Historically, it's garbage. It's, you know, opinion masquerading as fact. We see so much of this today. And where would we begin to respond? I'm not going to respond to the statements there now. I did a little bit in our first session. But this is just all too common in our culture. Now, I believe they can get away with statements such as this, really because they are appealing and they are writing to a generation that really has been denied a proper understanding and education in the Bible. Like we said, it used to so permeate our society that there was a foundation, there was a, con- you know, a cultural context where things were more easily understood. We don't have that anymore today, or at least I don't in my country. You see, it's a shame, because as we've seen, the Bible speaks to all areas of life. It speaks to our origins, our meaning, our morality, our identity, and also our destiny. These are, you know, the big questions of life. There are no bigger questions. And these are the foundations for human identity. If any of you have ever taken a course in biblical theology or maybe systematic theology, you'll know that quite often the narrative of the Bible is split up in a trifold structure, creation, fall, and redemption. You've heard that? It's often they teach, it's a very useful way to learn theology, creation, fall, and redemption. That, that structure actually works very well for learning about human identity as well. So we're going to look at creation and fall today, and redemption we'll look at tomorrow. One of the first things we learn from the Bible about mankind is that we are created. Okay? This stands in very stark contrast to all naturalistic theories of origins about humanity. 
This is ultimately what separates us from the animal kingdom. We are not highly evolved animals. We are different, we are unique, and we are created specifically by God. And this has a big impact on how we think about each other and the way we're supposed to treat each other. Let me read to you a, a letter. This is from the first century BC in Egypt. This is a real letter. It's an archaeological thing. It's a letter from a husband to a wife who traveled to find work. His wife is obviously pregnant, and he has to obviously leave her to go and get work. He's writing this letter back to reassure her that he's okay, telling her not to be anxious, and he'll send, send money as soon as he can. He says this, Hilarion to Alice. Very many greetings. Likewise to my lady Berus and Apollinarion. Know that we are still in Alexandria. Do not be anxious. If they really go home, I will remain in Alexandria. I beg and entreat you, take care of the little one. And as soon as we receive our pay, I will send it up to you. And if by chance you bear the child, if it is a boy, let it be. If it is a girl, throw it out. You have said to Aphrodisius, do not forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you then, do not be anxious. Lovely little love letter, yes? except for that one tiny part. You notice just the, the way it just rolls off the tongue. If it's a girl, throw it out. Now what must you think of humanity to have such an attitude today? And I believe this is obviously 1 BC. This is sort of very early on in the history. Girls were obviously considered much less valuable in the ancient world. That's a common practice. And if you actually want to look at the world today, many places where the gospel is not as permeated as our society, this is still the case. We're not too different. Man is fallen. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. We see these things. We have a big issue today with sex-selective abortion. And obviously it's, it's the same sort of thing that we see happening here. Even in the UK we have a big issue with this, where it's, it, it's illegal to do that. But obviously many communities don't abide by those rules. You see, this is, if anything, this is related to what does it mean to be human. And what was it that changed this prevailing view? Because obviously it was so common at this time, you don't bat an eyelid at it. Obviously, at least today, we have this sort of cultural Judeo-Christian heritage where we, we, we understand that these things are abhorrent. But it was the impact of the gospel that spread around the world, transforming people's hearts and minds. And it was this teaching specifically that we're going to look at today from the book of Genesis that man and woman were made equal in the image of God. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, please. This teaching is so radical. It doesn't seem like it is to us today. But it, for the time that it was written, it was absolutely transforming. In the first chapter of the Bible, we find these words. Genesis chapter 1. Let's read verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. You see, the Bible clearly teaches that human beings are created in the image of God. This is a distinct honour afforded to nothing else in the creation narrative. It is the sole privilege of mankind alone, bestowed on us by a loving creator. And this implies that we are to image God in many different ways. We're going to look at a few of these now. One thing we need to understand, though, before we look into this, this term, image, we need, we need to think about this a little bit carefully. You can only find your explanation of an image 
<laughs> if there is something that you are imaging, if you understand what I mean by that. You see, <laughs> the original, and then there's the image. And if we want to understand what, we, what it is to be made in the image, ultimately, we have to understand the original. So you see where I said, at some point, everything comes back to God. Remember, we looked at those Ask Jeeves questions. What is the meaning of life? Does God exist? You just cannot escape the God question. At any point in life, everything you look at, at some point, it always comes back down to these issues. And so it should, because as Christians, we know that God is the ultimate reality in this universe. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. You see, this means that our true identity is not contingent upon our job, our role, how beautiful we are, whatever it may be. Our true identity is completely dependent upon him. And as we explore this question, we need to understand the one who made us. And that is the only way we're going to get a proper answer to understand this. It reminds me a little bit of when Jesus asked, you remember when he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? You remember? And then they said, some of them say Elijah the prophet, and they gave these answers. And this is a kind of very good parallel to the question we're looking at. We've looked at now in our last session who men say that, that mankind is. But then Jesus, remember, he turned and he said, but who do you say that I am? He says, you are Christ, the son of the living God, and upon this rock, you know, and you know the verse. And now we're going to turn and we're looking at the scriptures and we're going to look about who God says that we are. You see, there are a number of truths that stand out in the ways we resemble God. And I would probably say the most profound one of these that makes us unique is that we are spiritual beings. We are not just physical beings. The views we looked at earlier are from those naturalistic scientists. They have no place for the spiritual life, no place for souls, no place for these immaterial elements. But the Bible very, very clearly teaches that we have two distinct parts. We have a body and a soul. Genesis 2 verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. It's very hard to actually define the soul in a sort of philosophical sense, you can try. It's, it's more productive to actually see what the Bible uses to describe the soul. And there's a number of different things. I'll, I'll summarize them quickly for you for the sake of time. The soul seems to be responsible for that sort of the immaterial part of our being, a subjective individual consciousness, self-awareness, emotions, moral awareness, rationality, cognition, and the independent exercise of free will limited free will, if you want to get into that debate. <laughs> the Bible provides some insight into the dual nature of man. The Bible commands us to love God with our heart, our soul, and our strength. You remember when Jesus said, Matthew 10, he said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear the, fear the one who can kill both body and soul into hell. You remember that verse? Again, this is just confirmation that Jesus agreed with the dualistic nature of mankind, body and soul. This is one of the main ways of what it means to image God, the makeup, the anthropology of mankind. Two things come from this. One of them is consciousness. We're known as, you know, we're high sentient life, as they say, but we are clearly our consciousness is far beyond anything that exists in any other life form in this world. You, you know, I don't, hope I don't need to prove that. It's just a brute fact of the universe, it's so obvious. It's, the consciousness is part of your immaterial mental life that humans experience. Now this is a big problem for views that don't <laughs> agree with the Bible or don't have room for this. You see, if the universe is a result of completely mechanistic 
unconscious processes, then everything in it, and everything in it is made up of unconscious physical particles, then by itself you cannot suddenly import consciousness into the equation. Mind and matter are, very t are two very different things. And this is a big problem, and they, many atheists acknowledge it. Let me read to you briefly from Tom Nagel again, leading atheist. He says, consciousness is the most conspicuous obstacle to a comprehensive naturalism that relies only on the resources of physical science. If we take this problem seriously and follow out its implications, it threatens to unravel the entire naturalistic world picture. He's very honest. I believe it does actually unravel the entire, entire world picture. Now, you see, while this may pose a problem for atheists, naturalists, materialists, whatever you want to call them, it's no problem for those of us who are biblical theists, or Christians. It's actually exactly what the Bible teaches, it's exactly what we see as we look around the world, it's exactly what we expect. Minds or consciousnesses are a brute fact of the living world. And the best explanation of this is that all these independent minds that we have sitting here actually stemmed from one original infinite mind. Minds come from minds, okay? They don't come from matter. This is the biblical teaching. This is philosophically, people accept this. As it's often been pointing out, you either start with particles or you start with a mind. And you can look around and you can, philo philosophers, they, they glean a number of concepts about this mind. You see, in the beginning, the Bible says in the beginning was the word, the term logos there. <laughs> this really is referring to the divine mind, if you want to call it that. This mind cannot be natural, therefore it must be supernatural. This mind had a plan and design in creating, therefore it must be personal. It cannot be one mind in a long chain of minds in order to uh, avoid the infinite regress, so it must be a necessary uncaused mind. It is not a mind that somehow emerged from matter, rather it is an eternal self-existent mind and it cannot be part of the physical universe, therefore it must transcend space and time and be immaterial. And finally, this mind must be powerful enough to create all energy and matter itself. That's the philosophical description that people often give. Now, one thing you might notice that all of those descriptions are very apt <laughs> to the God of the Bible. They all fit. All of those descriptions fit the God of the Bible, who is the ultimate mind, and he is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. This is consciousness. It's a huge thing about being created in the image of God. And we're going to see why it's a huge thing, because obviously you remember in the book of Romans, Paul makes some very specific arguments based on man's consciousness. Morality is another one, another reason, another thing that we get from being made in the image of God. Again, it's a brute fact that mankind is different from animals. When you see two people killing each other, it's not the same as when you see two animals killing each other. It's very different. That's, that's obvious and intuitive. Mankind are moral agents. We have the inherent ability to make moral choices to choose ultimately between right and wrong. We have an awareness of good and evil. And this is again, a unique product of humans because we are created in the image of God. This moral awareness is intrinsic and unique to us. We are spiritual beings and we are moral beings. Romans 2:15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness about their conflicting thoughts, even accuse, uh, accuse or even excuse them. You see, this explains why humans have this inherent concept of right and wrong, because God put it there in our hearts. Now, that's not to say that we always obey it. We'll talk about that in a bit, but it is there. 
You see, in this world, we hear a lot of talks about human rights today. I want to explore this concept a little bit for you. Human rights. Everyone admit that human rights is important. Any conversation you have, doesn't matter, you know, with not talking about with Christians, most people, it's generally accepted that you have to agree with human rights. These conversations are hard because they're highly politicised. You know, that everything is just so highly politicised these days, it's hard to have a conversation. But we need to be informed and we need to be careful and know how to have, you know, navigate that wisely. But the issue of human rights is most truly a Christian issue. I, I want to talk about this and I'll show you why. Now, notice when I say, you know, human equality or human rights, it's this idea that men, women, young and old are all equal in value and should be treated in such a way. That's, you know, if you want to simplify it, that's very mu pretty much what we're talking about. And when I say equality, I'm not meaning that all these people are the same. You know, that's a modern reinterpretation of what equality means, that everything is the same. It's a nonsense. It's never what it meant, to be quite frank. But that, again, that's the politicised nature of the debate that we get into. I'm I don't want to get into that today. Now, we need to ask, what is the ground of this belief? Why do we believe that? How can we believe that? Does the worldview that we hold allow us to believe that? You see, what I find is often when I'm talking with people about these issues, on the one hand, they're very quick to affirm the equal, you know, human rights, the human equality, as we say it. But then as I probe them a little more about some of their questions, I find that they also hold other beliefs that completely undermine that. And they're just holding them in tension. They've never connected them together to show that they're being very inconsistent with their worldview. And this is one of the beautiful things about the Christian worldview. You see, uh, the Christianity is not just a Sunday thing, it's not just a better set of religious guidelines, it's a total and complete worldview, and we apply it to every facet of our life and being. You know, we don't leave it at the door of the church when we go, we don't go and learn about science in the universities, we don't go and learn about sociology, we don't hand over every other discipline to people who don't believe in God. Because a, bib a true biblical worldview takes into account all of reality and it can, can explain it without being inconsistent. And we'll see that being inconsistent on the issue of human rights is a very good conversational starter. Um, because like I said, a lot of times people won't just, you know, if you start just immediately, I find this anyway, yeah, it's like this in the UK, as soon as you start trying to talk to someone about the gospel or church, they just leave. It's, you know, we're very hostile to that. You start talking to someone about human rights and they have a lot of opinions and you can start a conversation and then you can flip it around, show the inconsistencies and that usually opens a door for a conversation. You see, the belief that all people are equal is an enduring legacy of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And it comes, like I said, from the belief that we're all made in the image of God. The atheist Friedrich Nietzsche, he's a very famous atheist, he's one of my favourite atheists, if I can say that, because he was one of these ones who was willing to take atheism to its logical conclusions. He wasn't happy to remain in that place of inconsistency. He said this, Another Christian concept, no less crazy, the concept of equality of souls before God, this concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. And I believe he was absolutely spot on in that assessment. You see, this is true historically throughout the world. We saw this. And those examples I gave of people, you know, rescuing twins and fighting slavery and doing all these things that they do come, are born of this teaching. They call it ontological equality, a philosophical term. Basically means, you know, inherent value that we have. It's fundamental to Western civilization. What does it say in, in your Declaration of Independence from the motherland? <laughs> Sorry, I don't, I, don't know what the, I don't know what the cultural sensitivities are to that. <laughs> we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men, 
you know, are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unable rights. You see, they ground, the, I mean, it's an amazing document, really. They, they're grounding humanity's uniqueness and rights in God, in a creator. There's not many documents that do that in the world. The Magna Carta has a go at it, not, in, not so eloquently as this. But um, <laughs> the, has anyone read the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights? This is their Article 1. This is their attempt. We are all born free. We all have our own thoughts and ideas and we should all be treated the same way. It doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? <laughs> but this is, this is the, U, the UDHR, as they call it. You see, obviously, it's a document that was signed by many different nations. Um, so they've obviously gone to pains to remove identifying specific, a specific religious worldview through that. And it you know, really takes the foundation away from it, in my view. If you read the entire document, it's, you know, they're all very good. You know, all the articles are very good but it's hard to read it because having, knowing who the signatories are of this document, there are not many of them that are really making any effort to actually try and abide by these rules. It's, you know, it's almost laughable if it wasn't so tragic in the world. But one thing you need to know about that document, the U United Nations one, is it was written in 1948, just after the events of World War II. You see, two years earlier, 45 and 46, it was the Nuremberg War Trials. This is where the Nazis were being you know, placed on trial for war crimes just after, you know, after America and the Allies liberated the death camps. This is what led to the Nuremberg war trials. But this trial raises some very interesting questions for us today that I want to explore with you. You see, one of the things that happened was the defense attorney for the Nazis, he argued, this was basically his argument, they were simply obeying the orders of Hitler, which at that time had the force of law in the German state. Obedience to the law of the land, the attorney claimed, could, ne be, could never be the basis for a criminal trial. Technically, that's, that's correct. He further argued that no international recognized standard by which states could judge the aims of one another existed at that time. Therefore, threatening to prosecute the German nation for perpetrating acts that, at the time, did not carry punishment and were actually sanctioned by state law was invalid. His point that he's basically making is what right did America, Britain, or any other nation have to hold the Nazis accountable for their actions? What law code was being used? Invoking law codes from another nation to try people from another nation is legally invalid. It poses huge problems, and you, you can't do that. So on what legal basis were the Nazis being condemned? What law had they broken? Actually, at the time, none. If we're talking about just legal nation-state nation laws. Now, does this somehow lessen the evil of their actions? We'd all say no. But for those who hold to a worldview that rejects the concepts of objective right and wrong, like we've seen many people who do, this poses a problem. On what basis do you condemn the Nazis? They broke no international law at the time. Now, this came to the front of the Nuremberg War Trials when uh, the US Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson, he opened his uh, prosecution with these words. He said, the charter of this tribunal evidences of faith that the law is not only to govern the conduct of little men, but that even rulers are, as Lord Chief Justice Coke said to King James, under God and the law. And so he's clearly intimating that there exists a higher standard by which to judge people. The Chief Prosecutor for the United Kingdom put it even more clearly. He said this, ultimately the rights of men, as made as all men are, are made in the image of God. And they are fundamental, he said. Again, 
they're grounding their arguments for human dignity in the image of God. And it is the only foundation that can be consistent, that can stand the things that we see in this world. Justice Jackson from, for the US Justice, he then went on and he did that famous argument where he said, there is a law above our laws. You know, the one that rises above the provincial and the transient, place and time is what he means by that. He's referring to the moral law of God. Okay? Um, <laughs> I find it interesting that when confronted face to face with what can only really be described as pure evil, the moral law of God must be invoked in order to condemn it, and thus showing the bankruptcy of all other moral theories. You see, it's a sobering question. On what basis do you condemn the Nazis? If there's no such thing as right and wrong, then it's very hard to condemn their behavior. Now, you can express your personal opinion that you maybe dislike it, but you can't call it morally evil because your worldview does not have categories for those sorts of things, if you want to ground those categories. Now, I'm, I'm only touching on this very briefly. In the book, there'll be, there's a whole chapter on this issue that will flesh this out. But you see the inconsistency that this worldview holds. Let me demonstrate it for you in a different way. Richard Dawkins, I hope I don't need to explain. Everyone knows Richard Dawkins, God delusion fame. He says this, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares, DNA just is, and we dance to its music. No good, no evil, no purpose. This is actually a very accurate statement from his worldview. Again, he's being very honest here. Um, that is, if you carry it to its logical conclusion, that is what you have to say. However, elsewhere, Dawkins admits this. He says he doesn't actually want to live like that. He says, as a scientist, I'm a passionate Darwinian, which entails all those things I just read. But at the same time, I'm a passionate anti-Darwinian when it comes to politics and how we should conduct human affairs. On the one hand, everything I believe and teach and want to get into the hands of children and rally against is showing us that there's no design, no purpose, no meaning, no good, no evil. But when it comes to me personally in my own life, I don't want to live by those principles. I want to borrow objective morality from the Christian worldview and pretend that these two things don't contradict. You see the inconsistency there. They see this all the time in the world. Now, there are a few atheists, again, who are willing to admit this, Nietzsche being one of them. He was common for, he, he used to rally, get, you ever heard you know, the phrase, God is dead? That was Nietzsche, Nietzsche who came up with that phrase, God is dead. And one of the things he was arguing that we're, because God is dead, and anyone who claims to be an atheist now, you cannot continue living on the inertia of Christianity and everything that comes with it, and Christian morality was one thing that came with it. Nietzsche said this, when one gives up Christian belief, one thereby deprives oneself of the right to Christian morality, for the latter is absolutely not self-evident. <laughs> Compare that phrase with, with your declaration. I hold these truths to be self-evident. That's a theistic worldview. An atheistic worldview, for the latter is absolutely not self-evident. Christianity is a system, a con this is at Nietzsche still, a consistently thought out and complete view of things. If one breaks it, breaks out of it, at a f uh, sorry, if one breaks out of it a fundamental idea, the belief in God, one thereby breaks the whole thing to pieces. It stands or falls with the belief in God. And I would say it also stands or falls and with the belief in what God teaches about humanity. Where we are humans created in the image of God. And this has huge impact on how we treat each other. Those examples hopefully will show that to you. It's vital to understand that this is foundational. 
and I know I'm emphasizing this a lot because it really is the main starting point that everything comes back to. There's a Nobel Prize winning Russian novelist, his name's Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Soviet dissident, spent a lot of time in the gulags. He came to America and he delivered the Templeton Lecture in 1983, in which he said the following words. He said, more than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. He goes on, since then I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution and in the process I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies and have already contributed eight volumes of my own effort to clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause for the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Men have forgotten God. This is the issue, why I'm emphasizing this so clearly. I believe this is why we have it in the very first chapter of the Bible. Because as you probably know, the first 11 chapters of Genesis pretty much lay the foundation for most of the doctrines that we find being explained throughout of the Bible, redemption and atonement included in that. And we're going to see that as we play through. But humanity is pivotal. There's a reason Jesus Christ became a man. Now, of course, there's one more element that I want to deal with in the remainder of our time and that's the issue of male and female and I don't deal with this to be controversial I deal with it because it's in the text Genesis 1:27. so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them you see this tells us that gender is in fact sacred it is integral to our identity this means that men and women are equal in value and worth but they are not identical both are created in the image of God. That is where this comes from. Yet they are each given the privilege of being able to fulfill roles that the other cannot. This means there is a complementary design and beauty in men and women that contributes to human identity and human fullness. This truth is fundamental, not only to the question of humanity, but also to the message of Christ, because it teaches theological truths about Christ and his church. You may have noticed that the church is always referred to as the bride of Christ. There are reasons for this. It's, you know, it's creating a picture using male and female of the love that God has for humanity. This is one of the reasons why all attempts by mankind to redefine various different things, you know, regardless of all the issues involved with, with prohibitions in the Bible, one of the main reasons is that it messes with this theological picture that God has ingrained in the biblical narrative right from the book of Genesis. And you may notice, well, how does the Bible end in a marriage? This, that's the picture coming to fruition and it's a wonderful picture and it traces all through the Bible both men and women are created in the image of God now this we call this binary male-female concept of gender this is one of the main things that is probably under attack in our culture more than anything else today and I, I, you know, this question comes up a lot at youth events people want to know about this question it's always the most voted for question when we have events when I address issues like this, I always say look, I'm not so much talking to people here who may honestly be struggling. You know, there is a very small minority of people that honestly struggle with gender dysphoria and these issues. The church needs to minister to those people with compassion. We need to do better at that, I would say, at ministering in compassion. But one thing we must not do is minister with something that is not true. Because we've seen what happens when you tell people things that are not true. 
And God is the creator of this universe and he is the one who is all truth, the way, the truth and the life. So we mustn't be tempted to compromise with the culture. But I'm not really addressing the people as, as sort of individuals because as individuals they're created in the image of God. They possess inherent worth and dignity just as everyone else. And that should be the guide for our model of ministry. But when we're talking about ideology, there is an ideology that goes far beyond individual people that rebels against God's binary design and teaches that gender is merely something you choose. You've probably all heard this. Separate from biology, in this narrative it's a social, contra social construct. It can be fluid, it's unrelated to anything that our biology indicates. They call this the principle of self-identification. You might, I don't know whereabouts you are along in this. In the UK we're very far along in this. We had a case just in October this year. A male who was charged with multiple counts of pretty serious sexual assault was put into a prison. During his time in prison, these laws sort of came into effect or the, the political correctness that pushes these things. He then went through the courts to self-identify as a woman. He was transferred to a women's prison because of that. And he is now facing <laughs> life imprisonment for multiple counts of assault in the women's prison for the very thing he was put into the men's prison for. Now that is it's just absurd. This should not be happening. It is so ridiculous, but it is happening. And one of the reasons it's happening is because people have cut, you know, men have forgotten God in this equation. And this is the problem here. Another thing that this does is it plays a person's psyche against their body. It creates an unnatural divide, resulting obviously in fractured identities that never are able to achieve holistic unity. When you go against God's natural design, you end up with confusion. Let me read to you a little transcript from a BBC Radio 4 interview. This, you know, day, this was daytime, daytime radio in, in the UK. This was an interview with a child of 10 who self-identifies as a non-binary gender. That means they believe they are neither boy nor girl, but both. Uh, it was it's tragic in one sense, but comical listening to this because even uh, the, the reporter didn't know how to handle, you know, she, she had to say, you're, you're not a girl, you're a boy, but you were born a girl. Uh, yes, I was born a girl, but you're not a girl. And it, she, she didn't know what was the correct way to navigate this conversation. And I'm, you know, many of us don't know the correct way. It changes so frequently. I'm not making fun of it. I, this is a serious issue. But her mother was with her on hand to explain to everyone, and this is quote, this is what the mother said, Leo is definitely not a girl, Leo is more boy than girl, but he's not, he's not, like a lot of transgender people, a male mind who happened to be born in a female body, he's a non-binary mind who happened to be born in a female body. And then there was a long silence <laughs> after that. There's some questions we have to ask about this. Is that really Leo's personality organically growing or is that some off-the-peg gender identity that's been put on that person from on high? You listen to the whole interview, they'll tell you that they found that by Googling it. Going through the pre-selected gender identities that are put out on the internet, they describe one that they thought they described their child, they then took that and placed it onto her, this is now how you identify. Now you see the damage that that's going to cause people? You see how that's just going to cause so much damage? I hate these issues. But we're the ones that are going to be called 
you know, all the names that we get called for standing against these things. But like I said, that's expected. Jesus promised us this would be. But ultimately, we have to stand firm on the fact that we have the word of God. And it is true. And humanity is a beautiful part of that. And gender is a part of our humanity. Gender is determined biologically. It's either the presence or absence of a Y sex chromosome. Males are therefore XY, females are XX. Gender is... <laughs> It's basically written into the very fabric of our being because you'll find that chromosomal makeup in every cell of our body, except cells that are anuclei, but every, pretty much every cell of our body will have, will be, you know, our gender is written into our cells. So you cannot come to someone, you know, whether you're taking hormones, you're on blockers, you're going through, you know, surgery, none of these things can change that. That's all just cosmetic, and it's a lie. It is a lie and it's doing damage and we, I think we have to stand up and say that quite clearly, as hard as it may be. You see, the reality is that as human beings we are all embodied creatures, whether male or female, we are body and soul possessing inherent worth, dignity and value because we are created in the image of God. This is our starting point. This is absolutely foundational for understanding humanity. Now let's talk about one more issue because being created in the image of God is a huge blessing. But that's not the whole story. We are also fallen. Christian bunch, I hope I don't need to explain the term, what we mean when we say fallen. You see, the truth is we are broken and flawed in many ways, and the image of God in us has been corrupted. And this corruption came through sin, the entrance of sin into the world, and it has impacted every aspect of creation. The narrative for this is found in Genesis chapter 3. You remember the story. Adam and Eve, Eve is deceived, eat from the apple, God comes and calls them out on it, he curses the ground, the whole of creation, the physical universe, man and mankind are affected by this. What do we mean by sin? It's a very unpopular term today. People don't like the term. It's offensive, judgmental. Quite simply, it simply means missing the mark. It's a transgression of God's commandments. Obviously, the mark being the perfect will of God. Everyone falls short of that. It's been said that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. What does that mean? All you have to do is turn on the news for five seconds, and you're in absolutely no doubt that man is pretty depraved. But yet at the same time, when you try and tell someone that they're a sinner and they need Jesus Christ to save them, and they get very offended by that. And this is, this is just where we are in the world right now. You see, the Bible describes humanity as having this sort of dual nature. On the one hand, we're purposeful creations of God fashioned in his image. On the other hand, we're said to be separated by him from rebellion and sin, dead in our trespasses. Our heart is said to be deceitful, out of the heart flow immoralities. And you know, you know the verse in Matthew 15. And we are, in fact, said to be slaves to sin. That's the truth. This is one part of the biblical narrative about humanity, all humanity at this stage. Now people often say, how dare you call me a sinner? I've had someone t say that, you know, I've had people say that to me. How dare you call me a sinner? Such is the indignation that is levelled against someone who points this out. How dare we deconstruct someone's positive self-image? You might notice there's a big push for building up self-image right now. You go into any bookstore, seven steps to this, twelve steps to this, you know, uh, po you know yoga and all these positive thinking thing. This is, all, this is all what they're doing. Now on the other side of that coin, occasionally a very pious sort of religious man will step into the fold and offer his view of humanity, focusing singularly on humanity as a miserable and wretched band of sinners deserving of death. 
Now, whilst, whilst <laughs> there may be some theological truths in that, in the cultural context, generally, people don't have a context to understand that like they did 50 years ago. Terms like sin, they were understood. Most people had a, a basis for understanding of that in the culture. A lot of people do not today. So I, be I believe a bit more nuance is, is, needs to be uh, used when we're engaging in these conversations. Now, do we need a low self-image or a high self-image? Really, neither. We actually need a biblical self-image. That's what we want, a biblical self-image, which, we have, as we have seen, implies some very wonderful truths about the extreme value that God has placed on all of us. Yet, at the same time, it means we need to confront this very serious problem that all of humanity has. The Bible is very clear. It's a universal problem. It's called sin, and it is what separates us from God. You see, humanly speaking, the situation in which mankind finds itself is utterly hopeless without God. The only hope that mankind has is found in the person and message of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy it says, Jesus Christ, who is our hope, because he is the only hope. He's the only one that can offer hope in a hopeless world. And when I look around and just some of those examples that I've given to you, this is a world that needs Jesus Christ. Probably more now than it ever has. You remember one? Of, you know, we'll look at this a little bit more as we go on. Let me end now. I'm going to read to you a, a quote by Malcolm Mugridge. He was a British journalist, came to Christ in the end, latter years of his life. He says this, We look back upon history, and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and then dispersed, one nation dominant, then another. In one lifetime, I have seen my own countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced, in the words of what is still a favourite song, that God who's made them mighty would make them mightiest yet. Talking about the British Empire, obviously, there. I've heard a, cracked, a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last a thousand years. An Italian clown announced he would restart the calendar to begin with his own assumption to power. A murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the Western world as wiser than Solomon. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry more powerful than the rest of the world put together, so that the Americans, had they wished, could have outdone an Alexander or a Caesar in the range of their scales and their conquests. All in one lifetime, all gone with the wind. England now part of an island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. But behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomatists, there stands the gigantic figure of one, because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone, mankind may still have peace, the person of Jesus Christ. He is our only hope in this world. Now, this is as far as people go. I, you know, usually all these talks will be combined into one small talk. If you don't know Christ, people who don't know Christ, they are created and they are fallen. That is pretty much <laughs> as much as their anthropology goes. Now what we're going to look at tomorrow morning is what Christ brings to this situation what happens to the identity when someone becomes a believer because it's just you know the unsearchable riches of Christ is how the Bible describes it and we're going to explore just some of them tomorrow and I really look forward to giving those two messages uh, a lot more than some of the stuff we've looked at today but I hope you see why it's necessary 
I'm hoping you're going to go away from this with a very full picture, uh, a rounded view and understanding of this topic that will help you engage in conversations and engage with the culture. So let's pray now, close the night. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time. Lord, I know these things are tough, but Lord God, they're in your word, they're true. I pray, Lord, that you will help people here to learn to engage. Pray that you would encourage them, Lord, and make them just thankful for the blessing blessing of what it is to be saved, Lord, and to be in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.